Welcome back, everyone, to episode two of this very special week. It is National Vocations Week across the United States, and this is our little bit uh, in order to help promote vocations in general, but particularly uh, our special vocation. Yeah, to, to shed a little bit of light on our vocation as De La Salle Christian Brothers. Yes, and so in today's episode, we're we're finally gonna make good on the promise that we keep saying we're gonna we're gonna get to. And we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about the founder of the Brothers of the Christian Schools, St. John Baptist de La Salle. That's right. I'm glad you actually remembered his name this time. Guys, this is like the fifth time we've recorded it, and the guy, and he cannot remember it. Um, a couple of things before we get started. We, we're not going to dive deep. This isn't like a lecture series, right? We're not going to get into the weeds or the nitty-gritty. We're just going to give you... Uh, Hopefully, a good synopsis of his life. You know, important events um, that inevitably leads him to create this wonderful, wonderful group of, of brothers. Anything to add there, bud? No, but we didn't introduce ourselves. Ah, you yes. Again? With you as always. I'm Brother JD, and I'm Brother Raphael. And thank you for coming back yet again to listen to us. Uh, we know you have your choice provider, but we thank you for coming back. So let's get started. LaSalle's journey um, begins with, I think, very much like all of our journeys begins, right? It starts in the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, his grandmother is really the one that he credits with um, instilling a religious vocation in him. She gives him to read the lives of the saints by butler and i think from from that point on it's kind of it's kind of history yeah uh so at the age of about 10 de la salle gets a tonsure and a tonsure is basically that you know they shave the top portion of his head mm-hmm. and it's a, a public what's way your excuse excuse me i'm not balding like you are hey but i'm not got, i don't got the tonsure going either so this is a very public way of de la Salle, young de la Salle, saying, my desire is to be a priest. And during the time, it, you know, it's a French family, it's a Catholic family, and they were very supportive of his vocation. Um, his mother uh, was from the Moet family, right, Moet Champagne, and his father was a judge in the city of Reims. And they were fully behind it, 100%. But because it's a very Catholic and very French family, if you're going to be a priest, you're going to be the best darn priest that there the is. The best darn priest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so his mother's uncle, or his mother's brother, sorry, has an uncle who is the canon of Reims, of the Reims Cathedral. I hope I said that right. I got this guy in front of me making a drawing on the board here. It's a relative of, of de la Salle, of young de la Salle, right? Who decides that he's going to step down and retire from his position as a canon of the Cathedral of Reims. Which comes with its own uh, stipend, mm-hmm. right? And it comes with its own living quarters. I mean, it's a, it's a hookup. Yeah, it's, and it's a very nice status within the church and within the country. Um, this canon is typically an advisor to uh, the, the cardinal. Yeah. So, so imagine being 15 yeah. by the time he got to and, yeah. and, and having this kind of position and 
own income, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess for the time, you know, was wasn't necessarily odd. If you were well to do, you probably already had an apprenticeship of some sort. Yeah. But nevertheless, for us, that's uh, yeah, and especially De La Salle, right? Uh, the family did have a lot of money, right? They were very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so eventually, uh, young De La Salle decides that he is going to enter the seminary. And as we've already mentioned, he goes to the best seminary there is at the time in France, which is the seminary at Saint-Sulpice. In Paris, yes. In Paris, that is right. And he's there a little less than a year, uh, and his mother dies unexpectedly. And at the time, De La Salle was about 20 years old, and... News didn't travel as fast as it does now, so it was a little while for him to find out that his mother had passed away. And shortly thereafter, his father passed away. So De La Salle, at the age of about 20, is placed in charge of the family estate. His siblings, I believe there's about seven siblings, uh, or seven kids, and he's left to manage everything mm-hmm. at 20 years old. So he has to put his his studies on pause. I yeah. mean, that, you got to imagine, is a time-consuming job, putting mm-hmm. everyone's affairs in order. Absolutely. Um, but eventually, he does return to to his studies, while not at Saint-Sulpice. I, I keep trying to go with the French accent on that, but I just can't. Um, and anyways, joins the seminary in Reims. Mm-hmm. Well, and while he's taking care of the family finances, before he, we go a little bit further... He learns a good bit of, you know, running a business, as it were, keeping a a record of accounts. And so he did learn a lot of skills that would end up benefiting the brothers and the brothers would call upon later in life. He is then ordained Mm -hmm. a priest Mm -hmm. and, you know, has his already cushy job as a canon, is is, uh, looking, though... To change, he. I think there's speculative talk that uh, soon after this period, he he starts to discern further uh, what what might God be calling him to do, and mm-hmm. and he's thinking that again speculative, uh, thinking that he he wants to be a parish priest, not not a, a canon, uh, but his spiritual director, Nicholas Roland Roland. Yes. Uh, encourages him to remain where he's at and continue to discern this and really sit with this idea. And shortly thereafter, actually, uh, Roland passes away um, unexpectedly. And Nicholas Roland was responsible for a a group of sisters of the child Jesus. And he asked de LaSalle in his will to take care of this group of sisters Right. And to help them get situated, to get uh, a stable foundation so that they can begin doing their work or continue doing their work, rather, Mm -hmm. of educating poor girls, poor and orphan girls. Yeah. And actually, it's it's in one of these trips uh, to the convent that changes everything uh, for a young John Baptist de La Salle. And at this time, de La Salle is in his mid to late 20s. I'd say so. So he's not that much older than you and I. That's right. And he does all these great things. Yeah. Great What's your things. excuse? Great things. Yeah, he's going to do great things. He's, he's, he's a priest and he's in charge of a religious order. Yeah. That's a lot to put on somebody's plate. 
What? Should I go over my curriculum vitae, brother? No, please. You don't are, have time You're for opening that. a door here. No, nobody wants to hear that. Anyways, moving forward, in one of his visits to uh, have confession to say mass for the sisters, he is approached by what eventually I think we can look back and say was the, the pivotal point. The, Absolutely. The, the meeting, the encounter, as we like to call it in mm-hmm. our legacy. Uh, he meets Adrian Niel. Yes, and, and Niel is a man that's gone around uh, to, I believe, a few different cities at the time in France, and he's setting up these schools, these gratuitous or free schools, charity schools, for poor boys, right? The boy, the sons of artisans, uh, of peasants, uh, kids that typically don't have access to education. Right. Uh, at the time, there were only two real ways to get an education. Uh, both of them were expensive. You could ha- hire a private tutor or the child could attend a school conducted by the men called the writing masters, mm-hmm. school masters. Yeah, school masters. And as we would see it now, it's very different than how we see education now, how education was conducted then. It was a very one-on-one kind of uh, individual tailored education not only that it was conducted in latin so think about it from the point of view of these poor families the only way that these kids can go to school is if they have money and the other big piece is it's conducted in a language that these children don't know they struggle with french and you expect them to learn latin in order to get an education that doesn't really uh make sense at least in my mind i agree a hundred percent uh and so, LaSalle's a little hesitant, though, right? Yeah, when, when Niel asks him, you know, would you help me set up a school here in Reims? Yeah, because that's not his vocation. No. Right? And it's kind of like what we were talking about in the last episode. We, we hope, right, that we got the point across that you discern a vocation, but that might not be your, your end-all, be-all vocation, right? Mm-hmm. That, that God might call you to a change, or, and you must remain open to that possibility, yeah. which is, I think, exactly what happens here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so De La Salle thinks, you know what, I'll help him out for a little bit. I'll help him get situated, you know, figure out a couple of things. And then once his school is up and running, I can back away. I, you know, I, I have no further obligations uh, to, to this man or to his school. Except Niel's a kind of a wanderlust. Uh, yeah. Has a little bit of wanderlust. And, and soon after leaves... Uh, LaSalle with this this group of men to continue on starting schools in different places. Yeah. And, uh, and this group of men, uh, loosely associated group of men, do not have any formal education, right? They're, they're for lack of a better term, street urchins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to these men, it was a job that would provide for them, you know, three hots and a cot, right? Three meals and, and somewhere to stay. Yeah. I, I think that I, I t- I'm hesitant, right? I, I'm stumbling on my own words because you gotta put it. You gotta put yourself in their shoes. Uh, we know that a lot of the original guys don't make it through to to that point where where they take vows, right? But outside of the three hots and the cot, like God, God put these men there for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And and it's unfortunate that we may we don't have their names, we don't have who they are. We just know that there was a group of men who mm-hmm. who. Yes. thought that this was something they were going to be able to do and willing to do. 
Uh, and essentially, we're meeting a need of the time, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is in and of itself very inspiring. Yeah. Um, but LaSalle begins then to discern what does it mean for him to be placed in this situation? Like, mm-hmm. what does God ask of him? And I think it speaks to how LaSalleans today discern in our own lives, right? Colleagues, brothers, you name it. We look at what is going on around us and we, we try to see God in those little things and try to see where God is calling us from, from this active discernment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he invites these men into his house to give a retreat. Yeah. Right? Uh, a Holy Week retreat. De La Salle invites him into the family home um, where some of his siblings are still living. And he begins a, a little bit of evangelization or, or catechesis, as we would call it, to instruct these men on their faith. And at the same time, he's also giving them some tips of how to be a good teacher, right? Mm-hmm. And we fast forward a little bit to Dillisell actually inviting these men to, to live with him, to stay with him. Which his family thought he'd lost his marbles. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine they, they weren't royals. They, they may not even have been nobles, but they were well off. I mean, they the, the had money. Family, yeah, yes. the Dillisell family. They had money. And so in France... At that time, to cross that social divide was not was not cool. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone had their state or their place in the world, mm-hmm. uh, and for LaSalle to to cross that social divide and, and bridge uh, and bridge that situation, inviting them to stay in his house is is wow. Yeah, and in one of his writings, De LaSalle makes the remark that you know he begins to realize that these men that he invited to live with him are lower than his valet, right? One of his, his servants at the time. Right. I mean, you have to imagine, uh, for us, if we, if we put this now, it'd be like going out on the streets and, and asking, uh, people who are out on their luck, homeless, right. Who, who we don't necessarily even look at as we walk down the street and telling them, Hey, come live with me. Let's start. Let's start schools. <laughs> yeah, uh, not to mention the added layer of, like you said, the social classes that are in place during this time in France, mm-hmm. right? Um, and De La Salle says it takes over two years for him to get over, you know, these men and the way they behave and how he saw them before, right, is lower than his valet. I mean, you know, you live two decades plus in, in that mentality, in that world. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. It's definitely going to take a lot of time, uh, which I think is, was a practice in patience that if, and this is a reach, but that eventually comes in handy when he goes through his rough period. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of patience and a lot of trust in God and a lot of providence. Um, and so to be more effective. It, yeah. So um, De La Salle decides that he's going to renounce his position. Um, as canon of the Cathedral of Reims. And he decides that, you know, this family wealth that I have, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to give it to those who need it. We're somewhere around the 1684 year. Uh, and just before there had been a, a, a bad harvest, bad winter, and it ends up being a famine in France. Which uh, I think it's we should mention this because it's kind of funny to say uh, that the brothers during this famine approach... Mm-hmm. LaSalle, right? And challenge him. And again, you, if this goes down the tubes, you can go back home to your wealth, to your house, 
we're out on the, on the streets again. Mm-hmm. We're out of luck, mm-hmm. right? Like he, they challenge him uh, as he tries to console them, like take heart in, in God's providence and God's providence. Well, yeah, it's great. It's great to have God when there's money on your side, but yeah. not when you're poor. And yeah, so De La Salle responding to the needs of the world around him, right, decides that he's going to give this up. Mm-hmm. And he ends up giving away the money to the poor in the streets. And I can't help but think that those uh, first brothers, first men gathered with him are like, what are you doing? We meant give it to us. Share right. it with us. And you know? Endow us. Yeah. You got to imagine all the head scratching that went on. Like, Absolutely. Huh, that's uh, not what I meant. And I, I, I'm, I speculate that... Um, our order would be very different if De La Salle had actually put the money into the brothers, yeah, right? Sure. Um, but here we are still. Here we are anyways. And that if that ain't God's providence, I don't know what so is. De La Salle is now on the same playing field as, as these men, right? He has no position. He has no money. And he begins to form this community and call this community the Brothers of the Christian Schools. And this enterprise, right, this this group and their work of providing free education uh, meets all kinds of opposition, not only from church authorities, because different pastors and different priests want to control what the brothers are doing. Uh, but he's also facing opposition from those schoolmasters and those private tutors that we mentioned, because they see that De La Salle and his brothers are cutting in on their bottom line, right? That these schoolmasters are, are losing money because, well, De La Salle and these brothers are offering a free education, right? A quality education. Yeah, and if you're asking yourself, well, one gets paid and the other one doesn't, well, La Salle didn't just say these schools are for the poor and it's a free education. He said they're for anybody. Mm-hmm. And Whether, in fact, and whether you could afford it or not, right? Right. And in fact, he encouraged that there be a mixed clientele because that would bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. I think beyond just the educational need, he saw that there was a societal gap. Yeah. Right? There was the haves and the have-nots. And by coming together and instilling Christian values and giving them a good education, it was slowly but surely uh, blending, bridging the gap, I think. Buzzword. Yeah. ding and he's, he and the brothers are very innovative in what they're doing. They begin to do what we see as a classroom today, right? What we would call simultaneous teaching, where you have, during his time, there were probably 40 kids, 60 kids into the classroom, if not more. Mm-hmm. But as we see it now, where there's 25 to 30 kids in a classroom, there's one teacher, right? The teacher is teaching all the kids at the same time, and they're moving together from lesson to lesson, not to mention that he's teaching in the vernacular, right? All these private tutors and schoolmasters who are teaching in Latin, well, De La Salle and his brothers are teaching in French, right? He's teaching in the language of the people. For all intents and purposes, he's giving them a really good practical education, yeah. right? Things that they are going to be able to apply in their lives, give them one foot in front of someone who doesn't have this education, you know, and he's not expecting them to go to a university or become doctors, right? He just wants to be able to give them a better chance at doing well for themselves. Uh, One more thing that I I just really, I think is something we all do in our classrooms today as well, is we, uh, these students who eventually went through the three or two years that, that the schools were there for, 
as they got to be the older kids, would actually help the younger students mm-hmm. in their lessons. So that, yes, you had 60 kids and one brother, two brothers, but you also had these older students who would then uh, do fillers, yeah. uh, right? They work with extra. Tutor, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and on top of that, because a lot of these people, a lot of these, these young, poor students' families came from uh, seasonal jobs, there wasn't always food on the table. And I don't know if you know this or how much you've actually read the, the conduct of schools, but what Dilisau did was when these kids would be coming in, you know, they would have their lunch and it was usually a little bit of bread. Mm-hmm. But what he did was collect it all in a big wicker basket, right? And then he would distribute equal amounts to students at lunchtime, right? So the kid that got brought nothing because his family had nothing ended up getting something to eat, right? right. And that's just one of the things that Dilisau did to foster... A sense of responsibility for each other, right? This community aspect. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Again, it was a practical Christian education, yeah. right? And I think, again, innovative, he included the parents. Yeah. He made sure that the, the brothers spoke to the parents about the student mm-hmm. so that the education was not just in one place for a period of hours, but it was everywhere, right? Yeah. It, they, they followed through at home the same way we do, we do today. Right. And one of the other things, innovative things that Dilisau did was, so he recognized that the brothers couldn't be in every school, right? Dilisau wanted to have, you know, three brothers here and four brothers here. He didn't want to have one brother out by himself. Mm-hmm. And so what he begins to do is working on a teacher training program. So teachers, other teachers from other schools could come in and learn some practical tips and tools and tricks for their classroom, right? And how to conduct their classroom and to teach these kids. Yeah. Do you think we've uh, we've covered that he was innovative? One more time. He was very innovative. He was he innovative, guys. Yeah. And again, a lot of what we see in a classroom today is because of him, I would say. In my seldom humble opinion. Wow. Wow, I should go play the lottery. <laughs> uh, we we spoke about a lot of the good things that LaSalle did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we, we hit the highlights and the and the highs literally. There are a lot of lows, but they were there were a lot of lows uh, from the moment he starts the brother. He lives on another forty years, and he is embroiled with who takes over the leadership, which we talk about in the, in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he is sued mm-hmm. left and right by the state. He is actually, he's act, he's shunned by his own brothers at one point. Remember? Yeah. yeah. Right. He goes, Dilisau goes to uh, Parmeni, right? Mm-hmm. He thinks the brothers don't need him anymore. That's right. Um, he thinks he's going to go die. Yeah. Retire and retire have a, a simple life as yeah. a, a chaplain to, in a retreat center, basically. Um, yeah, there are a lot of lows. And in the end, he keeps getting called back. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's very, it's inspiring in the sense that there was always this great patience and always this great trust, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that God was there not only for him, but for this growing young group. Yeah. And so Dilisau, uh, dies in 1719, surrounded by the brothers that he came to love and respect. And the legend is that 
shortly after De La Salle died, the message got passed around between communities, brothers' communities, and it was, the saint is dead, right? And that's how much that these men admired him, admired the work that he did, and his dedication to the mission, yeah. right? And to the ministry of providing a quality education. When asked on his deathbed before he died, when asked, you know, do you believe or, or are you happy with the, the life that God has given you? His reply is, I adore the will of God in all things in my regard. Mm-hmm. Right. And paraphrased a little bit because they're the translation and this and that. But that's the gist that he he threw everything behind God, God's providence. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, I think it was a fruitful life. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And here we are, 300 years later. 301. 301. Well, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 301 years later, after his death. Math has never been your strong suit. No, no, and I don't claim to to uh, to know everything, unlike yourself, brother. But you tell me I'm wrong all the time. Yeah, that does not stop you. Uh, well. Maybe you should discern what God is trying to tell you through me. 300 years later, 301 years later. We are in over 80 countries. We have over a million students served each year. Mm -hmm. There is over, I mean, there has to be over a million colleagues as well. And and guys, we never grew to a significant amount, a number. Currently, we're about 5,000, I think, around the world. And I think that's a round number. Yeah, absolutely. That's rounding up. (laughs) Yeah, that's rounding up. Uh, But the work, obviously, has left such an impact. Mm -hmm. Such a great impact uh, in every every place we've been. Mm-hmm. That there yes. are brothers or colleagues. Yes. I think. I think that's good. Should we end as we end all things? Live Jesus in our hearts forever. forever.